Hello and welcome to Psychotherapy with Dr. Afia. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the relationship between our hair, our health, and our heritage. As a clinical psychologist, hairstylist, and research scientist, I believe there are unlimited amount of investigations about this topic. For my first season, I am facilitating conversations with my co-authors about our research studies, and I'd love to invite you to listen in as we explore the research topic, why it's important to us, and even some common myths about our work. In this episode of Psychotherapy with Dr. Fia, my special guest is Dr. Daniela Pugo. And she and I will process our recent manuscript entitled Brushed Aside, African American Women's Narratives of Hair Bias in School. And so to introduce you to the article, I'll share some of the abstract. For African American women, hair is a key site of identity formation and self-esteem that has been largely ignored by education researchers. 56 African-American women shared memories of negative hair experiences in school as a means to magnify the implicit injuries of racial and gender marginalization in educational environments. Memories consisted of hair shaming by way of classmate or teacher. Embarrassment and anxiety were the most frequently represented emotional reaction, resulting in participants' discomfort in school and in their interpersonal relationships. Findings from this study suggest that hair represents a source of trauma and identity negotiation within school contexts. Critical black feminist theories were used to frame the method and interpretation of participants' reflective narratives. The insights provided through the narrative sample fuel recommendations regarding anti-bias teaching. All right, that was a mouthful. Yeah. Um, and so I'm so excited with the special guest we have today, Dr. Daniela Pugo. She's an assistant professor at the University of the District of Columbia. She is a black Nigerian woman from Louisiana with an unhealthy obsession, or maybe healthy obsession, for black women and girls' experiences in America's educational context and beyond. She's a multi-published author and renowned qualitative researcher on all things black girl magic. <laughs> All right, Danielle, welcome to Psychotherapy with Dr. Fia. Thank you for having me. Yes, (laughs) happy to be here. (laughs) All right, so Dr. Pugo, please tell me how you began your journey of researching black girls and education. Well, I mean, you know, it's growing up in Louisiana, there's, there's so much to say in terms of the problematic narrative of black women and girls like you you hear you see it, you feel it everywhere you go and so there's very little um that really that I was exposed to outside of my family that really supports black girls journey in schools and what they want to do with themselves beyond that so um I really just started being re- really um observant of my environment and just started observing the black women and girls around me and their behaviors and always found it fascinating just you know as a matter of how their everyday interactions were amongst one another. So I think that's when I really got interested in it. You know, I spent a lot of time in my early years in church, and so that is a major platform for observing behaviors um, that I knew um, were specific to black women in, in terms of how we mother one another, how we become sisters, friends. So all these things were really important developmentally. And um, they're important to me, I think, a lot of times as black women who do research on other black women or who choose to center black women in their lives, I feel like there's always, there's, you know, sometimes that little shadow of like, well, who are you to study your own people? Or why do you want to, you know, but who am I not to? (laughs) Who am I not to study? Because, 
you know, if I don't do it or we don't do it, then who's going to do it? It just will continue to be um, information that's just out there that's important to us and things that we want to pass on and, and, you know, leave a legacy in terms of um, what's happening now in the world. So I look at it, I mean, I look at my research as sort of this um, historical documentation of what's happening that people can look back and okay, say these really important things happen in history. But during this time frame, here is what black women were facing. And these were sort of the the really important sensitive issues and not just to professional black women but to all black women because as we know our stories intersect globally mm. so we can find those common threads wherever we go across <laughs> the world we can find you know things that are, are, are um, important to us and as a matter of growing up as a matter of things that we've learned as a matter of hair care practices <laughs> so I think um, that's what led me to becoming interested in it and I think when I was in grad school I was I've always gone to PWIs but more I, I think I felt I felt it more in graduate school I felt just the degree of my blackness in graduate school because you know there were there's a, there a lot of white people and you're always aware of who you are so you're constantly grappling with who I am how I'm showing up in this space what are people what are people's um interaction with me like or what do they think about me so it's a it's a really it's it was a real exercise in identity and Mm -hmm. a real um eye-opener in terms of how you know being in a foreign environment you know in in terms of being in in that level of um that level of education so Mm -hmm. i think that is what made it more urgent that okay i'm gonna i'm gonna start this is what i'm gonna do i'm gonna talk about this and i want to be as unapologetic as possible and i want to center these stories and that's what i'm gonna do so that kind of went i mean i I never thought that was you know sometimes you're like do people study this like can i actually study this you know what i mean like you had those moments you're like am i really studying like can this is this really but then when you go to when you know you go to like conferences and people are studying like not to discount anybody that's studying something that's a little bit, you know, beyond, you know, beyond the scope of what people normally dis- study as a discipline. But when you go to conferences and people are studying things like um, underwater basket weaving. No one is really studying that. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like when you're, you're like, okay. When you go to conferences and you finally just sort of get engaged in this academic life or think that you're going to be like, oh, I'm going to go to conference. I'm going to do all the, I'm going to check all the boxes of being in academia and you're like, wow, I didn't know you could study that. But you know what I mean? Like you sometimes have that like, hmm, I guess this is, I guess this is what it means to, to, to develop a research agenda. So like, this is what I'm going to do. And this is how I'm going to approach how I do my research. And I'm going to, you know, be, um, you know, adamant about it. And I'm going to, that's just going to be a part of my truth. So mm-hmm. Well, this is quite a journey in terms of thinking about starting from school to the pews mm-hmm. at church to even going to research conferences mm-hmm. and evaluating what you think is important and valuable mm-hmm. in research and really bring in your voice and perspective to say this is like significant work to do with black women and girls. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I've heard that you utilize a lot of black feminist thought and critical theories in your work and even in developing a model. Isn't it really challenging then to publish using that framework? It has been just because, you know, the thing, how I um, started to look at and develop and think about theories um, in terms of theories that I wanted to use um, 
in terms of a framework for a paper, in terms of developing a protocol for research or, you know, whatever, however you want to use and develop a theory. One of the things that I had to really consider is that the theory is just a theory or the perspective is just a perspective or the framework is the framework. And it is, as the researcher, you have to interpret that. Mm. That is your sole purpose. So it's not, you know, and to me, it's not like, okay, the theory says this. Let me make sure it's doom, doom, doom. And then, yeah, you do get some people, you know, we get feedback in our papers like, well, you know, this is important to say in terms of one of the key tenets of the theory. Yes, that's important. But I think as researchers, our duty is to figure out if this is something that's authentic to the participants, like, is this valuable to them? Am I using this in a way that really highlights or centers them? And that's just not using the theory just because that those, these are all the components and I'm just going to put it in there, but really being intentional about that. And I think with, I mean, using um, BFT or black feminist epistemology, um, really for me, it just comes down to, um, a set of beliefs and the, uh, highlighting the experiences and a way to interpret our experiences. Now there are millions of other ways to interpret experiences, and that's why you know we do research in hopes that we will find ways to interpret things and um, develop our own theories. But um, I think it's been very useful in capturing um, power imbalances, especially when we look at institutions and schools. I think it's really critical because it does highlight those things. It does highlight it does highlight the experiences in terms of how we want the reader or the person engaging with the research to think about those experiences. So if we do that by putting um, black women's thoughts, ideologies, um, perspectives, uh, lived experiences, um, so, social demographics, however you want to package it. If we, if we think in terms that we use that as a prism, then we're, we're developing that the theory even more constantly adding on to it. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is what a really intelligent, powerful scholar has come up with, but what about this? Mm-hmm. And so that's the interrogation piece of always trying to add on to it, develop it more, um, create it so that it's um, highlighting different or, or sort of shedding light on dark corner corners that we don't typically notice when we're doing research. So that's mm-hmm. how so, I look at so it. So that black feminist thought really highlights, amplifies, spotlights the black yes. female experience. And, yes. And especially when it comes to research, which isn't always what articles or publications um, want to focus on. It, it's really... The things they don't want to focus on it, right? Because like. it makes I in my experiences, I think it's made it's you know it's made people feel as if though, you know, it's like oh I've been doing something wrong. So particular so for instance for me, um, I, I have an article coming out that's specifically the context is about predominantly white institutions, PWIs, however you want to put it, um, and I think people don't like to know how much damage they could have possibly done instead of facing it and saying, wow, this is what's happening. This is their truth. They're just telling a story about what's happened to them. But I think it can be unbearable for some folks and, you know, accepting that perhaps the structure and the goings on in your institution have caused these really traumatic experiences. Um, So I think that's, that's sort of been the pushback and you know and I think it it makes it makes people uncomfortable for the most part because they want to everybody wants to feel good about everything and 
we can't feel good about things all the time. But as black women, we know we don't feel good about stuff all the time. Often. So I think for other people and other races who haven't had the experiences that we've had in the Americas, I think that they, you know, it's it's it hits them in a different way because it's like, I'm supposed to feel good all the time. <laughs> How dare you highlight ways in which I'm a terrible person or these oh, things no. I sanction. Yeah. So that's <laughs> sort of the feedback. All right. So considering this framework, mm-hmm. um, what do you believe are the most common reasons for black girls being punished in schools? Yeah. So I, <laughs> I just, you know, the more, and I, I have to think back in my own experiences, I think that um, institutionally and in terms of institution structure wise, I think we have to look at what it would mean for school institutions to to release the degree of power that they have in these institutions and to first recognize that there is a power mismatch here and you know in all different in in different um forms of public institutions whether it be within the criminal justice system whether it be in schools whether it be um in other avenues or outlets there's that power thing that we as black girls or, or black women we find ourselves um, constantly in a tug of war mm-hmm. because we are we're in these environments and we're in these um, sections of the sections of of, of, of of our social lives that don't agree with any that tell us at every single turn you're not supposed to be here what are you doing here mm-hmm. so it's like you're you're constantly you're uh, you know you're within this space but then you're not really you're not really of the space. So you're just there to get what you need to get for the time being and you're constantly um, coping with what's there. So you're constantly responding to what's there. And of course, you know, recently, you know, we've been talking a lot about trauma and traumatic experiences, but um, I am not um, <laughs> versed in that area of, 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 of uh, being a clinician or a psychology in any way. But, you know, it's it's funny that when you don't have the, the scholastic background, and what's happening. And then when you hear somebody talk about it, you're like, oh my God, that I was traumatized. Like I went through trauma. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as, as, as I talk more with you and other clinicians and things like that, um, I'm, I'm learning and, and starting to re starting to recount some of the experiences that I've had. And I said, wow, well that is definitely, that would be considered a traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when when you're going through that, when you're a black girl and you're going through it and I'm and I'm speaking in terms of me, um, you're not looking at it. You're looking like how I'm I'm surviving this. But you're in a constant state of, you know, this person said this to me at 10, 11, 12. I don't know. That's a microaggression. (laughs) I just know it. I just know something feels off. And I think that's what's so powerful about um, the spirit of black women and, and people of color and. I think we just have that that sort of sixth sense about, hmm. Yeah. This well, it's right. It's interesting because it sounds like you're articulating that not only are black girls being punished in school, but more on an emotional level, a psychological oh, yeah. level, that there's oh, yeah. trauma in terms of how they're treated, how there there are these microaggressions mm-hmm. or rejections of their very existence. Mm-hmm. So not necessarily like you have two days of detention, which happens right. too, right. but it sounds like sit here and be quiet. Even yes. telling a black girl to be quiet in school can be really traumatic because we have such a strong oral tradition. Yes, and so silencing do. us is very emotionally 
harmful. It sounds like. So. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's wounds you cannot see. It's These are the things that you don't. I mean, I'm not bleeding externally. I'm not. I, I don't need, you know, you're not going to respond to me with, you know, acute, acute, um, an acute intervention. But these are things that over time fester and they really. Ouch. Yeah. I mean, you know, and that's really the feeling that you have, that really gut feeling and. And, and you don't know, you know, developmentally when you're in, you know, in a K-12 setting. I, I, I didn't, speaking from personal experiences, there were no um, clinicians that were willing to or able or had the tools to, you know, intervene. So I just, you know, I don't, I don't know what we, we're going to do about that crisis, which mm-hmm. is the same crisis. I mean, that was in the early 90s, but the, the same crisis still mm-hmm. exists, you know. All right, so even bringing things to present times, uh, we all have social media accounts these days. How do you see the role of social media in documenting some of these experiences or traumas for black girls in school, or even more specifically, these hair-related traumas in school? Mm. I know that you've sent me some links to various (laughs) news articles that come out or posts. So how do you see the role of media and even social media in documenting these experiences, hair-related experiences. I think it's really powerful because I think what it does is it allows, again, that light on dark corners or that this wasn't an isolated experience. So, okay, we're, we're familiar with the Me Too movement and what's happening with that. I think it's a really, it's a really powerful rally call for, this happened to me. But, you know, maybe yours didn't make it to all the social media platforms. Maybe yours wasn't reposted or retweeted. But just seeing that and saying, okay, well, I'm not crazy. Mm -hmm. Because we find a a lot of times in some of the um, literature about microaggressions or um, macroaggressions, we... um, there's one there's one key component of that and that's um, called um, hypothesi- hypothesizing or going back and forth with you know somebody saying did this really happen or maybe this happened because this happened so all the mental emotional anguish that's going on and then having that having your experience be affirmed on different outlets and then having people comment on that experience I think that does allow a space for people to, to share those experiences and find some sort of a, you know, relief in the fact that, okay, so I'm not crazy. Okay, so you did actually fire me because I had blonde highlights, or you did fire me because I had box sprays, or you didn't, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? So I'm not tripping, I'm not crazy. So I think that that can be a powerful tool towards building a collective understanding about what's really happening in schools. And, you know, of course, as black women, our, you know, our platforms are so broad. We're in all different spaces and corners of the universe. So we could be experiencing something in the same exact way in a different space and time. And it's like, wow, that happened to you way over there? Like, gosh, I really thought, I thought it was just these crazy people I work with. But it always happens like that. And I think it could be, I think it could be extremely affirming um, in terms of you're not alone and that this is something that's a problem. It's gaining national attention it's discriminatory it's harmful it's painful it's um traumatic you know so these are all words that need to be definitely always associated with those images which can be you know for some it can be triggering if you've had you know depending on the degree of experiences you've had of course if you lost your job over hair then that could be pretty (laughs) traumatic right you know so i think i think that's important i think even bringing um the necessary legal the necessary um 
legal um, interventions in terms of what needs to be done and getting some pe- making some people whole again mm-hmm. that have been discriminated against um, as it relates to their hair. And there's, you know, I think it's really important. So I'm happy that there's some type of national narrative being created around Black women and their aesthetics. There are a variety of emerging methods to investigate the topic of Black girls in education. From your perspective, Dr. Apugo, what is the ideal approach to qualitative research methods in studying Black female voices? Oh, of course, I think that we have to take more of a participatory approach, meaning that um, we have to consider the experiences of Black women as their truth. And when we do that in terms of methods, we really, as a researcher, we really, um, we really take into consideration that it's an absolute honor to have people sharing their experiences with us. So we have to produce and write and create research that allows for those voices and those experiences to come through. So in terms of Black girls, a a huge piece that keeps coming up in the literature, a huge piece that I've experienced in my life that I see and that I interact is the erasure piece or the piece of just completely muting the voices of... um, Black girls and their experiences. So you have this handful or this pocket full of researchers that are studying Black girlhoods or they're studying Black girls in, in, in school spaces and other social spaces. But then, you know, when we look at our recommendations and we look at these articles and what they're recommending, it's hard to identify the stakeholders in terms of are we all talking to the same people? Are we all talking to the same really intelligent and really well-versed, well-read researchers? We're all talk- We're all having the same conversation with one another. So my real push, I think this year and beyond, is how can I talk directly to the primary stakeholder who are Black girls? And how do I do that? Um, the reality of the situation is they're not subscribed to some of these journals that we're... <laughs> You don't. I mean, we're, I'm not. We're not paying these humongous prices. So how do we? How do we break that barrier of access? Like, how do we let them know that I'm writing about you? This is for you. Because had I known that, or had I known that there was someone interested in me as a young black girl growing up in rural, rural, rural um, North Louisiana, I think a lot of things would have been different for me in terms of possibility and what might be possible. So I mean, I, I think my work as a researcher is to figure out those barriers, um, whether they are hidden or, you know, completely (laughs) constructed by society or what have you. But how do I break that down? I think that's a huge part of the approach to formulating methods is how do I minimize those barriers for the participants and how do I make them heard? And um, there's a research method that is gaining steam. It's old. I mean, participatory action is not um, anything new, but um, in terms of applying that method, to the youth. So YPAR, Youth Participatory Action Research, allows um, for the actual participants to respond to the right now. So let's say, for instance, there was a girl who contacted you through your social media and she said, hey, this is going on in my school. And so as a researcher, Dr. Fia, you would support her in talking through the problem. So you're making that power balance very parallel in terms of I'm going to guide you through what you're seeing, but you're the primary person who is 
the stakeholder in this experience. So this is happening to you and it's totally through your lens. Um, I'm going to teach you or are going to support you in responding to this and how you move forward with some sort of some sort of um, attempt or resistance at what's happening. So and that should be the goal of, you know, all great researchers who may not even be um, recognized as scholars or not recognized in the academic community <laughs> as such, but absolutely are who have been using this method informally. And that's how these these different um, uprisings happen, you know, like people responding to the situation or the experience. And then that's how people become interested. And so I think really giving youth an opportunity or giving participants an opportunity to be active and involved in their own trajectory as human beings in these institutions. Thank you. Very well said. And even thinking about um, really involving the participant in the study. I think you were surprised when I collected data for the hair health and heritage study that there were <laughs> hundreds of participants. It is ch- sometimes challenging to get people to tell their stories, mm-hmm. but people seem to pour out so many stories. Yes. So the guided hair autobiography was a new research tool to collect stories about hair. I think we were both shocked that most of those stories, and especially the negative ones, were in schools. So people talked a lot about being bullied. People talked a lot about policies related to the school. They talked about teachers even criticizing their hair, both white and black teachers. Mm -hmm. I think even in the narrative, some of the black girls were surprised that their black female teachers were the ones who were the most critical at points. And so there are tons of examples if you read um, some of our upcoming work that highlights the voices of these black women negotiating school Mm -hmm. and hair. Mm -hmm. So based on some of the trauma that we found in the study, um, Dr. Puga, what are your recommendations to teachers who are interested in decolonizing schools for black girls? As a former teacher um, who's taught in many different pockets of urban um, America, north, south, east, west, I think that has been a barrier. And I'm just going to start out with some of the, the barriers to that teachers have. Um, is definitely we see a cultural mismatch in terms of what hair actually means to black girls. And so I want a a really, really small experience um, that I had growing up in rural South Louisiana. One of the things my mom would always tell me is that when you go to school with your hair one way, you need to come home. (laughs) Your hair needs to be the same way when you come home. And so, of course, I had a friend and the friend was like, let me, I I think I got some new braids or something. She was like, I want to help you, um, you know, style them or do what, put her in ponytail and what have you. And I had a teacher, third grade, her name was Miss Allison, really, really, really nice white lady. Really, really nice. I think she's actually still alive. But um, (laughs) really, 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 really well-meaning, sweet woman. Um, Third grade, third grade teacher. And my friend who had like restyled my hair, I think I had like some some type of like loose braids or something in. So she restyled it, was playing in it and what have you. And so by the end of class, I realized that my hair was actually totally different than when it came. Oh, no. And then I also noticed that it was almost time to go home. Uh-oh. And so my friend, and um, right before we went home, I, I started, the panic started to set in because I'm like, oh my God, my 
my hair is so different. I can't do anything about it. And so Miss Allison, so I started crying, of course. And Miss Allison comes over to my desk and she says, what's wrong? And I say, I don't want to go home. I don't want to go home. And she's like, why? Um, you know, because I never, you know, I've never had that level of response to going home. And she says, and she says, what's wrong? What's happening? You know, she's alerted as a teacher. Like, why does this child want to go home? She usually does. And I tell her, I say, because my hair, my hair, my, I can't get my hair like I'm going to get in trouble because my hair is different. And she said, well, what do you need to do when needs to happen? So this and at the time she had to be in her mid 50s. So this 50 year old white lady, which my mom was probably like be devastated if she hears this and knows this happened. But she attempts to re like recalibrate my hair to how it was initially. And for the life and for the life of her, like she was asking all these questions as she was doing it. And I'm just seeing her in my mind's eye and she had these really long bony fingers and she she was she just couldn't understand why it was a big deal. She was just like, it's not a big deal. And when I looked at it, it was absolutely not the way it was. And she couldn't she just I mean, she was really befuddled like it's fine just go home and I but I knew when I went home I was gonna get in trouble because it was nowhere near and she had attempted so I think about that story in terms of just you know and, and God bless her heart she she was a great person for trying to help me out but I think about those instances where you know you have people that just don't get it and that are not willing to invest in asking questions or why is this why is this important or let me find out more about her about her hair because obviously if eight, seven or eight year old Danielle feels like this, then this may be something, you know, so I don't, I don't know if we are, you know, if that pressure is necessary for teachers in terms of all the other things they have going on. I don't know how or what level of, of time and effort and energy teachers have left to even invest in trying to formulate research paths about, you know, hair and what that means. But what I do know is that I know that it's, worthwhile for teachers to um, find out as much as they can about students and so one way to do that would be um, just being interested or creating a space where students can speak about their experiences or about what they did that weekend maybe do, getting their hair done was something that they that happened that weekend oh well um Afia do you get your hair done every weekend yeah it's like a ritual mama so those are things that help you to um, develop a sense of awareness about the experiences that children are having external to your classroom therefore enriching the experiences that you're having internal to the classroom and so I think those are small little things that don't take much heavy lifting that you can do and also uh, taking a, a, a multiple perspectives and looking at the experiences how experiences of black girls are so can be so different and complex like it's not something that's static it's it could go any direction if you so choose to question and invest and ask and become interested and definitely um, creating a space that affirms them. Though these are things that don't take help. These things that take that take a few minutes at the beginning of the school year to put images and put affirmations and put symbols and put tokens and put artifacts in your classroom that allow for, you know, black girls to become engaged to feel like they're welcome to feel like this is a space where I can feel comfortable talking to my teacher about you know what's happened so what somebody said about me or my hair things like that so when you make it a, a space where and you know just like you or me we don't want to be anywhere comfortable I don't <laughs> so absolutely so children are you know it's the same approach with teaching and I 
I, I actually teach in a graduate teacher preparation program and I teach undergraduate as well. And this is something that we talk about often. I'm very lucky, fortunate and blessed um, to work with teachers of color primarily. So, you know, there 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 are some barriers I don't have to navigate because, you know, like I said before, there's there's a, a collective consciousness. We get it. So I can say one thing. About, OK, yeah, we're on it. We, we know we got it. But there's a bit more work to be done on the other end when you're talking to educators who are, are wider, who are interested in trying to become critically conscious in terms of uh, black girls. And I, I think that one of the things that I do also try to engagement is is the the affirmation piece the affirmative piece the sort of rhetoric that's taken on um, urban education in which I I teach an urban education program so you know one of the most dangerous things that have happened that I've noticed is this you know zero tolerance thing like okay when people hear that of course teachers and folks um, of the like think about in terms of discipline but you can also have a zero tolerance policy just as a matter of teacher philosophy Mm -hmm. if you're not careful because you don't allow people to talk. You don't allow people to express themselves. You don't, or you essentially erase who they are. And as you said earlier, and thinking about the oral tradition of blackness and what it means to be expressive, what it means to be using your body to, to denote certain feelings and emotions, it's extremely important to us to express those things. So um, I think aligning yourself culturally and not you know, and, and being as authentic as possible, being forthcoming about your lack of knowledge and then wanting to come to it in space of learning and, and, and healing. And, you know, there's a the term now that's, you know, we've adopted in education and this restorative justice piece, you know. So, I mean, I think we have to rethink what justice is, especially when it comes to black girls. <laughs> like, what is justice? Is it you know, what does it mean for my classroom? Not just as a school, you know, the principal's telling you everybody, we're going to do this. It's how we're going to do it. But then the very finite work of the very microscopic, the very granular work that teachers need to do as a matter of philosophy in their classrooms and really defining justice. And like I said, having students participate in what justice means mm-hmm. for them individually, you know, within their context. So. Those are definitely interesting approaches. So really creating space for black girls, whether it's about hair or not. It sounds like giving um, space for them to negotiate justice, um, to process um, and to really identify who they are. So I'm going to take a little turn to wrap us up. Um, You are, again, a prolific researcher and writer. And so (laughs) considering that amount of scholarship you've engaged in in your training, what is like a quick point you want to tell listeners who are approaching research writing? I know you did your own interventions on me. You told me it doesn't have to take 12 years to write one manuscript like I've been doing. You said that it can be done quickly. Can you tell us like a quick point about how people can, professional scholars can approach research and write? Okay, so um, my approach is a little bit organic, and I like to consider myself as an organic scholar. And what that means is that, you know, I leverage everything in my experiences. And one of the things I, I think about a lot is my upbringing and where I'm from, which has a lot to do with the type of person that I am. And I have a uh, Nigerian father, American mother. And one of the things that my 
well, one of the things that I really think about is I, I, I write via inspiration. I write based on taking a notion. I used to, when I was younger, there would be, my grandmother would do sewing projects with me all the time. And it would, we would start on the project and it would, months would pass before we would even finish it. And <laughs> I would be like, oh my God, I'm ready to finish it. And I would ask her like, why is it taking us so long? And she says, I sew in spells, mm-hmm. which I'm like, what does that even mean? I'm like six or seven. But now I realize it means that when you have to be inspired to start again, mm-hmm. to do something. So I don't, I don't agree with having um, these rigid, like my professional training or my educational training has, has taught me you know, a very has really been the antithesis of what, how I grew up. So I, I've, I have mentors who's like, you got to write every day for two hours and you got to do this. And I do not do that. I do not go by that. Um, I do believe in setting goals, being realistic. I never say I'm going to write nonstop. For t- I say that, but then it never works out. So I think that like having a goal, like I'm going to finish the introduction today or I'm going to review two articles today. Those are realistic goals that you feel good about crossing off. But for the most part, my writing is really binge because it's like by the spell. Well, well, well yeah, you're, you're tapping into the black girl magic. And it yes. sounds like your ancestors are even leading you th- through that right. writing process to mm-hmm. be inspired, right? And taking in spirit and being the root word for inspiration. So yeah, you you have a divine approach to writing. And so it sounds like to really stimulate oh, yourself. Thank you for making it sound fancy. Thank you. Stimulate yourself to produce. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Pugo. My brain is tingling. Um, And just to even summarize some of the final thoughts, this study really uncovers the depth Mm -hmm. and vividness of the black female experience of oppression and dominance within their daily lives and school spaces. Mm -hmm. The participants in the study converged thematically in the sample, but also aligned with other research studies. Mm -hmm. So we really yearn for the findings of this study to inspire educators to further investigate the notable experiences related to hair in the learning environment and to commit to establishing schools as a safe place Mm -hmm. that is responsive to teasing and bullying. We ask that secondary stakeholders explore their own biases and assumptions regarding the school experience for African-American girls. Mm -hmm. The igniting of conversations around the experiences of black women and girls with both public and private education and institutions must be spread. Dr. Pugo, how can listeners get in contact with you to keep up with your projects? You can email me um, dlapugo at gmail.com. Um, I'm pretty responsive, so if you have any questions or want to collaborate or talk through some something that a project that you're thinking about, um, just hit me up there. And um, I am on social media, so I will um, I'll get in touch with Dr. Afia to. <laughs> give you more details on that we'll be posting that information so as always you can follow the latest psychotherapy information through our website psychotherapy.org and our instagram handle at psychotherapy of course if you like this podcast please consider sharing with a teacher a friend a black girl whoever you would like so in closing let's remember that a path to healthy hair is having strong roots